Well, if uh, you're somebody who reads your notice sheet, and I hope you do, uh, the one you might have read a week ago might well have suggested that uh, Kay would be speaking uh, this morning. Uh, Kay's had an absolutely manic uh, few weeks, and she's due to be on leave at the end of next week. Uh, So I kindly offered to uh, uh, open up God's Word for us this morning. I'm sorry about that. You probably would have preferred Kay, but uh, you get me uh, instead this morning. But Kay, we just want you to know that we hope you have an amazing uh, week of leave. It's still five days away which probably feels like forever uh, in a few days' time. And thank you for all that you've been doing um, for us. So we've made it to the second week in our our Lent teaching series, which is going to take us right up to Easter Day. And uh, we're journeying with Jesus. Uh, He's on his way towards Jerusalem uh, to the events of Holy Week. And over these next few weeks, we're stopping off at various points in Luke's gospel uh, to hear about some of the encounters that Jesus has with different people. And today we get to Luke chapter 12, Um, so do feel free to open Luke chapter 12 if you've got a Bible with you. Uh, But before I read it, I want to just set it into its context. Um, In the chapter before Luke chapter 12, at the beginning of chapter 11, there's a really nice moment. Jesus is with his disciples, and one of his disciples says to him, Jesus, teach us how to pray. It's encouraging, isn't it? The disciples, people who are around Jesus all the time, found it hard to pray. So they say to Jesus, teach us how to pray. And in response, Jesus shares with them the words that form the basis of what we call the Lord's Prayer. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. A really lovely moment. By the end of uh, chapter 11 of Luke's gospel, everything's changed. Jesus suddenly finds himself at a very awkward dinner party. Have you ever been to one of those? A very awkward dinner party where he finds himself going head to head with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders. And at the end of uh, chapter 11 of Luke's gospel, Jesus declares six woes over the Pharisees. Now, these woes are basically rebukes. And as you can probably imagine, they weren't well appreciated. Jesus is basically rebuking these Pharisees because they cared more about what they looked like to others than about what they look like before God. Jesus says to them, look, the problem with you lot is your hearts are bad, and because your hearts are bad, it's given you a wrong focus, which is making your wrong heart even worse, and then your wrong heart is leading you also into all sorts of wrong actions. And actually, that equation never, ever fails. If we have a wrong focus, our hearts will be wrong. What we see with our eyes ultimately impacts what's going on in our hearts. If our hearts are wrong, then the outworking of that is our actions in everyday life will be wrong. Well, of course, we should say this morning, this equation, we've seen it to be true, haven't we, on the international stage? We discover a person, we discover a regime who have got a wrong focus, which has polluted their hearts, and it has created some devastating actions in our world. It's true on the international stage. But I want to suggest as well that actually this equation is true at a personal level, and that's the level at which Jesus is speaking into um, our situation today. He's bringing it right up close and personal. He's talking to uh, the religious leaders who he declares to be hypocrites, but at the same time he's talking to his disciples and challenging them too. Well, in our scripture reading this morning of Luke 12, it's some hours after that awkward dinner party, and Jesus is out on the streets. Tens of thousands of people have gathered around him to come and hear what he's got to say. You can imagine the scene, can't you? You can imagine the scene of tens of thousands of people gathered in front of you, waiting to be addressed by you. So what does Jesus do? 
He talks to his disciples and he ignores the crowd. But the topic is still exactly the same as it was a few hours before at that dinner party. Listen to what Jesus says to his disciples, but crucially, let's listen to what he has to say to us this morning as well. I'm going to read in different chunks, so please do keep Luke 12 open in front of you. First one, meanwhile, when a crowd of many thousands had gathered so that they were trampling on one another, Jesus began to speak first to his disciples, saying, be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. There is nothing that concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What you've said in the dark will be heard in the daylight, and what you've whispered in the ear of the inner rooms will be proclaimed from the rooftops. And I think the first challenge from these verses, from verses 1 to 3, is not to live life like it's some kind of a fancy dress party. Who likes going to fancy dress parties? Any of us? The opportunity to dress up as somebody else and maybe for a short season pretend to be somebody else. It's interesting, isn't it, in verse 1, that despite the fact that these tens of thousands of people are there, Jesus is only addressing his disciples. The crowd are pressing forward. They're trampling on one another to hear what Jesus has to say, but he tunes out of the crowd and he speaks only to a few disciples. In a sense, the crowd are just there eavesdropping on him. So I wonder, what could it be that was so important that Jesus decided to ignore the thousands and talk to just the few? Well, Jesus doesn't mince his words, does he? In verse 1, he says, beware. Beware of the leaven or beware of the yeast of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Now, whenever Jesus begins a discussion with the word beware, well, we should beware. He's saying, look, I really want you to notice something here, which is crucial to the success or otherwise of your faith journey. So listen up. Would you hear what I've got to say? It's really interesting that when you flick through the Gospels, you very rarely discover Jesus dishing out warnings to his disciples. He's so grace-filled. I guess he could have done it all the time. He could have wagged the finger at them constantly, but he doesn't. Very rarely does he give a warning. So when Jesus uses this word beware, it ought to have them and it ought to have us on the edge of our seats. It's a great moment, isn't it? Tens of thousands of people and Jesus is looking out on this crowd and he's saying, look, would you beware of people like him and beware of people like him and watch out for people like him, these Pharisees, because if you live like them, you're going to end up becoming like them. Oh, awkward moment. And Jesus is saying to them that the way they're living is absolutely woeful. They're far from God. They're far from me, even though their job descriptions ought to suggest they should be close to me. That's significant, isn't it? Just because we wear a title or we hold a role, it doesn't mean that we're necessarily close to God. Jesus is saying, look, there's no amount of makeup, there's no fancy dress costume that you or I can put on to hide our sins from a holy God. It just doesn't work that way. The message version of the Bible puts these verses so brilliant, brilliantly, verses 1 to 3. It says, watch yourselves carefully so you don't get contaminated with Pharisee phoniness. It's great, isn't it? Don't get contaminated with Pharisee phoniness. And then it goes on to say, look, what's hidden will eventually be revealed. What's in the dark will eventually come to light. If you say something in private, then it will be known in public. It's all really hard-hitting stuff, isn't it? In short, Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, you and I really don't have any secrets before God. 
So why do we live life acting as if God doesn't know or God doesn't see or God doesn't hear or God doesn't care? Jesus is saying this is a bonkers way to live. God does know. God does see. God does hear. And God does care how we live our lives. And then he chucks out this big challenge to the crowd who are eavesdropping, eavesdropping, but particularly to his his disciple. And he's, he's saying, look, whose opinion do you value the most? Whose opinion really matters to you when push comes to shove? And his point is a simple one. Look, these hypocrites, exemplified by the Pharisees, who I can imagine him pointing out, well, they're a bunch of people who value people's opinions over God's opinion. And you can imagine the disciples in this moment thinking, well, how does this apply to me? And that's the challenge for us today is to say, how does this apply to my life? Does my will sometimes trump God's will? I have to say, yes, I think it sometimes does. Well, Jesus would say to me, Chris, that's the way of the Pharisee. Do I sometimes believe, uh, say one thing in public, but actually my private life would proclaim the polar opposite message? Jesus would say to me, Chris, that's the way of the Pharisee. Jesus is saying, watch, beware. If you find yourself on the the slippery slope of phony, pharisaical living, that's not easy to say, then you need to know it's an eternally precarious way to live. Now, the reason Jesus was saying all this to his disciples is not because he thought they were actually Pharisees, but Jesus knew that the temptation that the Pharisees wrestled with wasn't unique only to Pharisees alone. Hypocrisy is something that's infectious. It's more infectious even than COVID is. Jesus is saying none of us are immune, so we need to watch out. And Jesus is saying to his disciples, look, if this is a wrestle for these so-called religious leaders who have a title and ought to behave well just because of their job description, let alone anything else, then this is a temptation for you and it's a temptation for me too. You see, Jesus knew that hypocrisy can lead us into a vicious cycle of fear, which is very, very difficult to escape. Fear of what other people think produces hypocrisy, and hypocrisy produces more and more fear because of the fake world that we've created around ourselves, because of the fear that someone's going to discover who we really are. And in the end, that kind of living ends up enslaving us. In really severe situations, that kind of fear will debilitate us. I wonder if maybe you can think of an occasion in your own life when this has happened to you, or you can think of a friend or a relative who's found themselves enslaved in that kind of a way. The person who constantly is living for the approval of somebody else. The person who constantly needs to please other people. It takes so much effort. It takes so much energy to maintain that kind of a lifestyle. And if our world becomes fake, then we'll go to extreme measures to keep that fake world real to everybody else, even if we know it's not real to us. We might lie. We might cheat. We might steal. Life is being lived as if it's a fancy dress party. And sometimes people who have created that world will conclude, you know, it's better to live in the shadows than it is to step out into the light for fear of being discovered. Sometimes people won't do, they won't say things that need to be said or done for fear of not being liked. Hasn't it been encouraging in the last couple of weeks to see religious leaders in Russia stand up and say this is not okay? Hasn't it been encouraging in the last few weeks to hear of Ukrainian church leaders standing up and declaring that they are going to continue to stand for Jesus even when they've been told not to? Continuing to speak out truth 
into the darkness. Do you know, it's impossible to be a people pleaser and to authentically be you. It's impossible. You cannot please people and be authentically you, the person that God has made you to be at the same time. People pleasing rather than God pleasing is a form of slavery. And I just wonder if some of us find ourselves in that people pleasing place. We want to be liked, of course we do. We want to be liked by everybody, of course we do. But just sometimes we can compromise our faith in order to be liked in that kind of a way. Of course, when you look at the Pharisees, the real problem was the issue of lordship. And Jesus' point to his disciples was simple enough. Either Jesus is Lord of your life, either God is Lord of your life or he's not. Following Jesus is an all or nothing pursuit. But in the case of the Pharisees, we know it was even worse than that. Not only were they trying to call the shots for their own lives, but they were trying to also be Lord over the lives of other people as well and take the place of God. And Jesus says, let me tell you what these Pharisees are like. He uses a well-worn illustration in his day. They're like the yeast or the leaven that you add to dough. Now, Jesus isn't talking here about the kind of yeast that you and I make today to make a, a bread rise so it's really wonderful. Jesus is talking about the kind of yeast or leaven here that actually ruins the bread and makes it go completely flat. Jesus is saying this kind of yeast fundamentally changes the bread into something else to the point where it's almost not bread at all anymore. Jesus is saying, look, by adding the rules of the Pharisees into your life, the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, you're no longer following the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Instead, you're following a false God, and it's a false God who loves to hold you captive. So the first challenge is not to live the Christian life as if it's a fancy dress party, where we turn up as somebody else. The call of Jesus is to come as yourself. And that takes courage. And that leads us nicely onto the second point, which comes from verses 4 to 7, which is there's a call here to live with a fearless authenticity. Jesus is saying, look, here's the problem in verses 1 to 3. But he's saying in verses 4 to 7, here's the solution. There is a way to be free. And it's all about the fear of God rather than the fear of other people. He's saying if we can fear God rather than people, then we'll find freedom. Verse 4, I tell you, my friends, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that can do no more. But I will show you, show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after your body has been killed, has authority to throw you into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies? And yet not one of them, not one of them is forgotten by God. Indeed, the very hairs of your head, I find this amusing. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You're worth more than many sparrows. Now, when Jesus is talking here about having a fear, a fear of God, he's talking about a reverent fear of God. He's not talking about a kind of cowering, quivering, oppressive kind of a fear. This is a healthy fear to fear God. A healthy fear of God is this idea that we're, we esteem God so highly and so much that we value his opinion over the opinion of anyone else or anything else. To fear God means that we care immensely about what God thinks. It means that we're going to obey him out of reverence before we obey anyone else. And Jesus is saying the antidote to being a Pharisee is to have this healthy fear of God. 
Now, there's a logic in terms of what Jesus is saying here in these verses, and it goes something like this. God is to be feared because he has the power to cast you into hell. Now, that feels a bit uncomfortable, doesn't it? But actually, isn't it good that Jesus never, ever denies the reality of hell? He speaks a bit of a reality, and he's saying, look, this is the God whom you're seeking to relate to. He's got the power. He's got the alternative authority to determine whether you're in relationship with him for eternity or not. Jesus never denies the reality of hell. Why wouldn't we respond to that kind of a God? But Jesus also goes on to say, look, God is omniscient anyhow. God knows the least little thing that's going to happen in your life. He knows the number of hairs on your head, more for some than than others. He knows about the birds and the sparrows in the sky. Not one of them is ever missed. God knows the smallest detail. And therefore, you've got no reason to fear because this God is a God who loves us. Fear God and fear not is the logic of Jesus' argument. But Jesus is making the point so clearly using the Pharisees as the example, it's impossible to fear God and to fear other people at the same time. It's impossible to fear both. He's saying without a healthy, proper fear of God, we'll become captive to another kind of fear. And it's the unhealthy, it's the oppressive type that holds people captive. Well, when you juggle all that around, it kind of makes sense, doesn't it? When you fear God properly, you have no reason to fear what other people think of you. That's why it's so important. This is where Discipleship Explored comes in. So important to know who we are in Christ. Because when we know who we are in Christ, we've got no reason to fear. Now, I think this all creates a really big challenge for us in this day and age. Because so many of us, even Christians, perhaps especially Christians find our self-worth, don't we, all over the place? How many of us really have got our worth rooted in what we own? How many of us have really got our worth rooted in how we look or how we dress or how clever we are or the car that we drive or the gadget that we use? Jesus is saying so clearly here, your net worth does not determine your self-worth. Your self-worth is determined by an entirely different source. How many of us find our worth in the false image of ourselves that we've curated on social media? The number of likes you get doesn't determine your self-worth. The number of comments you get about whatever it is you've posted on Facebook does not determine your self-worth. Jesus' call here in Luke 12 is to root our self-worth in himself and in his Father only. One of those words that Caroline read for us from Nehemiah 9, just absolutely brilliant. The priests there in those verses are declaring that God is the God who made the mountains. God is the God who made the animals and all other things. And Jesus is saying here in Luke 12 that if this is the God that we've come to know, the all-powerful, all-knowing, sovereign God, why do we bother trying to hide and pretend that we're something that we're not? When things get tough, remember that God is big enough. He's big enough to look after the birds in the sky, so surely... Surely he's big enough to look after you and to look after me. We're called to live with a fearless authenticity. To really be the people who God has made us to be. It's okay to stop pretending. And then thirdly and finally, verses 8 through to 12, there's a call here to 
to live with what I've called a bold humility, B-O-L-D, not B-A-L-D, a bold humility. And Jesus gives two examples of what fearing God and not fearing others might look like. He says this, I tell you, whoever publicly acknowledges me before others, the Son of Man will also acknowledge before the angels of God. But whoever disowns me before others will be disowned before the angels of God. And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But anyone who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. When you're brought before synagogues, rulers, and authorities, do not worry about how to defend yourselves or what you should say. Why? Because the Holy Spirit will teach you at that time what you should say. So Jesus is giving to us here a really clear test of, uh, that we can apply to ourselves of whether or not we, uh, other people, are more important to us than what God thinks of us. It's in verses 8 and 9. And firstly, it's about making this bold confession of Jesus whenever we have the opportunity. How do you know if somebody fears people more than they fear God? Well, if somebody fears people more than God, when they have an opportunity to proclaim Jesus as Lord and Savior, they won't do it. If we fear people more than we fear God when it comes to our faith, when we have an opportunity to speak out publicly, our faith will remain entirely private. There are some amazing statistics that do the rounds that say something like this. 80% of people, if they were surveyed who attend church more than a few times a month, would say, yes, it's absolutely my personal God-given responsibility to share my faith. And yet the flip side of the coin is this, is 61% of those people who have that conviction have never told another person about their faith in Jesus. And it's tough, isn't it? There's this contradiction between what we believe and what we live out in reality. So we can do the Jesus test. Do I share my faith with other people when I have the opportunity? If the answer is no, then just maybe it's a sign we're more afraid of people than we are of God. Now, in saying all that, I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should all become the next uh, Billy Graham or a, a capital E evangelist. That's definitely a call. It's definitely a gift. But I am suggesting that we should all be small e evangelists, that we should be taking the opportunities as and when they come up to share with um, family and friends when the opportunity arises. I really love the words of 1 Peter chapter 3 verse 15. It says this, always be ready to give an answer to the hope that you have when you are asked. Oh, that's a relief, that when you are asked bit, isn't it? Such a relief. I don't have to stand on the tree corners proclaiming Jesus to be Lord and Savior and people aren't even interested in what I've got to say. But it does say, be ready to give an answer when you are asked. Well, why will people ask, why will people ask us about the faith that we have? They'll ask us if we're not wearing fancy dress costume. They'll ask us if we're living out with that um, bold authenticity that I spoke about a few moments ago because there'll be something about the way we live and the way we conduct ourselves which causes them to ask the question of, why do you live like that? What is it that makes a difference in your life? And Jesus is saying here in verses 1 to 12, uh, 8 to 12 that one mark, and it is only one mark of godly fear, is this willingness to boldly confess Jesus when the opportunity comes. But he goes on to say, actually, there's a second test as well. And this is in verses 10 to 12. Jesus is saying that only a person who truly fears God, if ever they get brought before officials and rulers, will be brave enough to speak out in support of Jesus and to say they've trusted in him. 
He's saying a person who cows in fear of other people in that public arena are very unlikely actually ever to have gotten arrested because they wouldn't be speaking in the first place. Now, I know this is the extreme. It's very unlikely that too many of us are going to get taken before a court, but it does happen in the world, doesn't it? It's very unlikely. But actually, in the private sphere, in our own personal lives, the same still applies. Are we ready to speak out for Jesus? To confess Jesus is to, reje- is to risk rejection and persecution. But there's an amazing promise in the text. Did you spot it? The promise is this, is that if you find yourself in such a situation, and I think this applies to our sharing with family and friends as well, if we're brave enough to open our mouths and the Holy Spirit will give us the words that we need to speak for that particular moment. This is such a challenging text, isn't it? It's a a challenge for those who have decided to become followers of Jesus. And Jesus is saying, look, in this journey of discipleship, you're either in or you're out. You're either hot or you're cold. Jesus' encouragement is to be decisive about following after him and to follow him robustly. I came across a great sign this week about decisiveness. It said this, be decisive. Because the road of life is paved with flat squirrels who couldn't make a decision. (laughs) I rather like that thought, flat squirrels. Don't become a flat Christian. Be a three-dimensional Christian. Be a Christian who's so full of the life of Jesus. Be a Christian who's so decisive. Where we say, we're in and I'm going to live robustly for Jesus. Be decisive, don't be a flat Christian. If we don't know who we are in Christ, then we don't know who we truly are. And I want to encourage you, even if you decide not to join our Discipleship Explored course, where, by the way, you'll get one of these rather snazzy-looking brochures, even if you choose not to join it, would you please read the letter to Philippians? And remind yourself of who you are in Christ Jesus. Because when we know who we are in Christ, there's no need to hide. When we know who we are in Christ and how much God loves us, we don't need to live life in a fancy dress costume. It's time to take off the masks. It's time to take off the costumes. It's time to discover who we are in Christ Jesus. And he says to you, you're loved and you're cherished. And by the way, my grace is sufficient even for you. Do you know that truth this morning? Let's be still together as we pray. Lord, this uh, it seems like such a significant message for your disciples. But Lord, we recognize it's a real challenge for us. And Lord, first off, I just want to thank you so much that you've invited people like me into relationship with you. That's amazing. And Lord, thank you that you understand, too, our desire to be liked and loved by everybody. But Lord, thank you that your call is clear.
Your call is to be a fully sold out follower of Jesus. And Lord, if I'm honest, I don't really know what one of those looks like. But Lord, my prayer for myself, my prayer for each of my brothers and sisters in Christ is that, Lord, you'll make me more like one, whatever they look like. And I want to pray this morning, Holy Spirit, come minister to our hearts and to our minds. Maybe for some of us this morning, we, we've been living life at that fancy dress party. We've been hiding behind a mask. We've been living life far too much for the approval of others. We've not been as bold as we might have been in our declaration of faith of who you are. Lord, make us ready. Make us ready to give an answer for the hope that we have. Lord, we stand on this amazing promise that when we're asked and when we open our lips to proclaim Jesus is Lord, that thing we believe in our hearts will give us the words to speak as you promise you will. Lord, thank you that this journey of faith is exactly that. It's a journey. It's a work that you've begun that one day you will complete. Shape us, mould us. Perhaps we can pray more courageously. Refine us and purify us. That we would become more like our Saviour and our Lord, who is Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. As we ponder Chris's words, we ask God to work in our lives and to refine us so that we can follow him with every part of us. Let's stand and sing, Purify My Heart.
be seated for just a moment. Just as we were singing, I, I just had this memory of a really classy bit of graffiti I saw. And I have a sneaking suspicion this bit of graffiti might be for somebody. And I'd encourage you to go and look at it. It's on the old impact building in the pit car park if you want to look for it. And I'm sure this isn't what the writer meant. But it says, grace can die. And as I read that piece of graffiti the other day, grace can die, my immediate gut response was, no, it can't. And some of us need to know that this morning, that God's grace is sufficient for you. Grace cannot die because God's grace is lavish. And as you wrestle with who you've been and where you've come from, if you've concluded that God's grace is not sufficient for you, don't believe the lie because it is sufficient for you. In Philippians, Paul speaks out some words of thanksgiving and then he prays a prayer. And with this, I want to finish. Paul says, I thank my God every time I remember you in all my prayers for all of you. I always pray with joy. Why? Because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And then he says this, being confident of this, that the God who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's grace, isn't it? The God who began a good work, one day will complete it. And then here's his prayer. My prayer is this, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you'll be able to discern what's best and pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and to the praise of God. Would you go from this place today knowing that God's grace is enough for you? And would you go from this place today abounding in the love of God which is rich and which is overflowing for you today. God bless you all. Thanks for being with us.